Hey, this is Joseph Thompson. Thanks for listening to the Open Spaces podcast. Why don't you sit back, relax, and join me as we take a journey together into wide open spaces. You know, I was uh, recently reading a Mark Batterson devotional titled Flip the Script. And in it, Mark opined that if your life isn't what you want it to be, it may well be because you're telling yourself the wrong story. Uh, those of you who've listened to me for any length of time know that I'm a keen uh, believer in stories shaping the ethos uh, of a culture or a community. And um, so I believe that uh, as a Christ follower, your the things that you believe are the things that you live. And basically your stories shape the characteristic spirit of the culture or community that you are a part of. Um, And those things are shaped by your aspirations and your beliefs. So if it's true that stories shape the ethos of any community, in other words, shape the characteristic spirit of any community, then what is the ethos of the Christ-following community? What is it that shapes the Christ-following community globally and universally that make people see us and are drawn to what we are? I would say, actually, that the better question to ask is, what should the ethos of a Christ-following community be? Uh, Because what it should be and what it actually often is, as seen globally in the church, are two vastly different things. And I would suggest that the ethos of a Christ-following community should be one of love, compassion, and self-sacrifice. After all, that is what Jesus defined our community as. And lest you think I'm just making that up, here's how he said it. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Well, love personified means that you must express compassion and self-sacrifice because love doesn't always do what is easy or what is best for you. Oftentimes, love requires you to make a sacrifice. It requires you to express deep compassion for other people. And so uh, Jesus has defined what the ethos of the Christ-following community should be. And, you know, it's easy to love when everything is optimal and when life is moving along at the pace that's most comfortable for you. Unfortunately, that isn't always the way that life happens. You see, because life is messy simply because humans are messy. And unlike the God that we profess to represent, we are fallible and extremely complicated humans whose emotions can often tend to guide our decisions. And ultimately, uh, those decisions that we make cause us to build what um, uh, uh, Andy Stanley calls paper walls around ourselves. That is, walls that aren't real, but walls that to our minds justify and validate why we can't do or do, or why we can't or can do something, or why we, let me say that differently, they validate why we can or can't do something we ought to do or something we ought not to do. So the hard-to-accept truth, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is, is that you and I are not the sum total of the mistakes we've made. Uh, 
Now, while the world may seek to define us as such, and sometimes we even seek to define each other as such, we seek to define each other based on our mistakes. We are not the labels that are put on us by other people. Essentially, as Christ followers, we are whom God says we are. And to embrace anything less than that is actually a false humility. So I would say that if you want to change your life, uh, in Mark Batterson's words, flip the script, if you want the ethos of the community to which you belong to be different, you have to start by changing the story that you tell yourself about yourself. Because if you aren't different, the community that you are a part of cannot be different either. So Mark would say it this way, if you want to win the day, you've got to flip the script. And so you might be asking, yeah, uh, that's all well and good, but how do I do that? So let me make a few suggestions here. The first thing I'd say is, I'd suggest that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Scriptures in the Bible, the, the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is a good place to start. And by that, I mean, it's easy to read the Holy Scriptures as just some ordinary book and miss the whole message and purpose of what it's saying. But when you read the Holy Scriptures by the help of the Holy Spirit, then they confront, they being the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, confront the false identities and false narratives that are perpetrated by Satan, telling you you are who you are not, or you are not who you actually are. See, you need to remember that Satan's epithet is, according to the scriptures, the father of lies. So the scriptures reveal the Heavenly Father's meta-narrative and the unique role that each one of us plays in it. But Satan, the father of lies, is constantly calling us to not believe what the scriptures say about us. So, I guess you're still not buying it, huh? Well, consider the following. We're not alone in doubting and questioning who God says we are. You see, Abraham thought he was too old. Jeremiah thought he was too young. Moses thought he was unqualified. Joseph thought he was overly qualified. Gideon had an inferiority complex, but Jonah had a superiority complex. Peter made too many mistakes, and Nathaniel was too cool for school. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and King David was the runt of the litter. I want to focus a little bit on King David, because as you know, all these stories, as they play out in scriptures, in the end, none of those things that they believed about themselves mattered once they embraced what God had said about them. So, who you are is not actually the issue. The real issue, or what really matters, is whose you are, at least according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, which declares, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. But I don't want you to just take my word for it, as I say all the time. So, Let's together take a cursory look at one of the heroes that I mentioned earlier on, uh, King David specifically. And let's explore just one of the many moments from his life, from the life of this runt of the litter as he saw himself. Until God got a hold of him 
and transformed his heart. So uh, we're reading in the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we'll spend our time in chapter 17. So listen to the story. The Philistines drew up their troops for battle. They deployed them at Sokka in Judah and set up camp between Sokka and Azekah at Ephesdamim. Saul and the Israelites came together, camped at Oak Valley, and spread out their troops in battle readiness for the Philistines. The Philistines were on one hill, the Israelites on the opposing hill with the valley between them. A giant, nearly 10 feet tall, stepped out from the Philistine uh, line into the open. Goliath from Gath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was dressed in armor, 126 pounds of it. Goliath stood there and called out to the Israelite troops, Why bother using your whole army? Am I not Philistine enough for you? And you're all committed to Saul, aren't you? So pick your best fighter and pit him against me. If he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will all become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you'll all become our slaves and serve us. Sounds like a pretty worthy strategy because that way we save the shedding of a lot of blood and undue death, except for one thing. In his overconfidence, Goliath was certain that there was not a man in Israel's army who could stand up against him when he rose 10 feet from the ground. So his confidence assured him that the Israelites would become their slaves. And you know what else? The Israelites believed that too. So Goliath goes on, I challenge the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. When Saul and his troops heard the Philistines' challenge, they were terrified and lost all hope. Enter David. He was the son of Jesse the Ephratite from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse, the father of eight sons, was himself too old to join Saul's army. Jesse's three older sons had followed Saul to war. The names of the three sons who had joined up with Saul were Eliab, the firstborn, next Abinadab, and third, Shammah. David was the youngest son, the runt of the litter. While his three oldest brothers went to war with Saul, David went back and forth from attending to Saul to tending his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Think about that. It's wartime. The strongest and best fighters in all of Israel are required to be at the battlefront with Saul in battle. But not David. David is so insignificant, so irrelevant, so small, that his job is to tend the sheep just so that there's food for everyone. Once in a while, he runs to Saul to check up on what's going on. (laughs) And so the Bible tells us that David gets up early in the morning, leaves his sheep in the care of another, and heads out to the battlefront. And um, if you know anything about the story, David gets there and his brothers are really upset to see David when David begins to question, hey, what's going on? And why is everyone running away from this Philistine? What will happen? What will be given to the guy who kills him? And David's brothers just tell him off and say, look, you need to go back to those few sheep that you were tending and stop creating a buzz here. But unfortunately for them, word got to Saul that um, David was there and talking about wanting to go out against this giant Philistine. 
And so when word got to Saul about that, he sent for David and he offers him his suit of armor to go into battle against him, knowing that uh, this is probably a lost cause, he's going to die, but uh, I can afford to spare him, he's not that valuable. But here are David's words. God who delivered me from the teeth of the lion. You see it? No longer does he see himself as the runt of the litter, but he sees himself the way that God sees him. God who delivered me from the teeth of the lion and the claws of the bear will deliver me from the Philistine. Saul said, go, and God help you. As the Philistine paced back and forth, his shield bearer in front of him, he noticed David. He took one look down on him, notice, down, and sneered. A mere youngster, apple-cheeked and peach-fuzzed? The Philistine ridiculed David. Am I a dog that you come after me with a stick? This is a reference to David's sling, slingshot. And he cursed him by his gods. Come on, said the Philistine. I'll make roadkill of you for the buzzards. I'll turn you into a tasty morsel for the field mice. David answered, You come at me with sword and spear and battle axe. I come at you in the name of God of the angel armies, the God of Israel's troops whom you curse and mock. This very day, God's handing you over to me. I'm about to kill you. Now keep in mind, this is the runt of the litter, standing against a 10-foot giant who's got a sword and an axe and a shield and everything he needs. And David has a slingshot and five smooth stones. And he declares before they've even started a battle, I'm about to kill you. Cut off your head and serve up your body and the bodies of your Philistine buddies to the crows and coyotes. The whole earth will know that there's an extraordinary God in Israel. Here's the point. David remembered whose he was, and not the narrative of the many who saw him as a kid with nothing much to offer. He didn't care about the narrative of those who saw him as the runt of the litter. And because David remembered whose he was, and not the narrative of the majority, an entire nation was delivered from slavery to the Philistines. So the scriptures are replete with reminders of whom God says you are. You are the apple of God's eye. You are God's workmanship. You are more than a conqueror. And nothing can change that. It is what it is. It is who you are. And once you start to believe it and live it, you can flip the script of your life and your story. Because the lives and stories of so many other people are depending on that. Can you imagine what the story written would be if David had not turned up and challenged this great Goliath? What Goliath is standing in your path or in the paths of many people who need you to become who you are so that you can flip the script? You see, there never has been and never will be anyone else like you. But to be clear, that isn't a testament to you. It's a testament to the God 
who created you. And the significance of this truth is, is that no one can take your place. Because no one can worship God the way you do or for you on your behalf. No one can serve others the way you do or for you on your behalf. You see, Jesus doesn't just live in us. He lives as us. But again, don't take my word for it. Here's how the scripture says that. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Pay attention to those words. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I love that. Because dead men have no opinions. That means if we trust our own judgment, our own opinions, our own ideas, we haven't yet died to ourselves and let Christ live through us, in us. So friends, I'm simply saying if you want to change your life, if I want to change my life, we have to start by changing our stories. We have to start living our lives in a way that is worth telling stories about. Indeed, it is time for us to flip the script because the lives and well-being and spiritual health of so many people are dependent on what you believe about who you are and what you are called to do. So today, get out there and be who God says you are. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Open Spaces podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please like it and share it with your friends. We'd really love to connect with you, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Open Spaces podcast. <laughs>